Father, we sit at your feet, ready for another chance to learn from your word by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we may be continued to mold, to be molded into the image of your Son, to do your work in this kingdom, to reflect glory upon you, and to be prepared, Father, for service in the time to come when we will be with you forever. Father, we take those steps in small ways. First, Father, by listening to your word. Secondly, Father, by committing it to our hearts and to our lives. And then finally, Father, through obedience. And this morning, Father, it's about learning. Let that happen, Father. Let the Holy Spirit guide me. Let my words be your words. And then, Father, as the day progresses and our week and our month and our lives as well, that these things we hear, Father, would would roost in our hearts and would change us as only these words can and that we could obey, Father, in the decisions we make every day so that the work that you've done in us would be brought to completion according to your will. I praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Luke, as you know, Luke chapter 2, as we go verse by verse through the Gospel. And at this point, it's probably appropriate to say, welcome to Christmas in July. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. As we go through the birth story of Christ in the middle of the summer, you know, it's funny, this is actually exactly the way my family experiences the gospel story, my family back in Australia. Uh, the only family I have living in this country are my siblings and my parents. Everyone else in family that you would think of as true family are all in Australia, where my family is originally from on my mother's side. And for them, Christmas always comes in the heat of the summer, in the heat of their summer in the Southern Hemisphere. So... I get to experience it maybe the way they do for once. You know, the story of Christ's birth, we've heard it over and over, right? At least once a year we get through the whole story of the birth and of the mother and the father looking for room in the inn and Christ being born in a manger and the shepherds who come and the wise men and so on and so forth. We've, we've got that story down. We've actually heard it maybe too often, if there is such a thing. And at least in this year you're going to hear it twice. You're going to hear it today and again probably by the end of the year. And this story needs to be studied. It can be studied not just for the poetic beauty of the story that we've all become, become so familiar with, but also for its spiritual depth. There's a great deal more depth to this story than I think most of us give any attention to. And I think part of the problem is we hear it so often that teachers are somewhat reluctant to go back to this story and teach it with any kind of spiritual depth because they assume their audience has heard this story enough. Well, I don't think we could ever hear it enough, and I don't think we could study it enough. Let's give our mind toward really understanding what God is showing us through the story of Mary and Joseph and Christ born in a manger. And so we'll begin in Luke where we left off last week around verse 4. Mary's labor and her birth in Bethlehem. Go with me there now. Luke 2, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
This, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with an angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Bethlehem was a small city, small town in Christ's day. In fact, it still is. If you've been in that part of the world, you'll know. Bethlehem is not a major city. It was especially small in that day. Dating all the way back to probably around the second century, church fathers, among them uh, Hippolytus and others, had testified that Christ's birth likely occurred in the late December, early January period of about 5 B.C. to 4 B.C., somewhere in that time period. So it's likely that that's a pretty accurate date. This is one of the few holidays where we probably do have the time of year probably pretty close to correct. And so it's going to be early winter. It's going to be their winter as it would be for us as well. But from the text, it seems like it was probably an unseasonably mild winter. I mean, first of all, you have shepherds out in the field with their flocks at night on a clear night. You know it's a clear night if you know the Gospel of Matthew because of the star in the sky, though Luke doesn't record it. So it's a clear night in the wintertime, but the shepherds are out with their flock. If it had been a cold night, they wouldn't have done that. They would have been inside, they would have penned their sheep, and they would have been out of the weather. So the fact that they're willing to let their sheep stay out on the pasture and to be out there with them means it was probably a pretty warm night as winter nights go. But it also makes sense that the father, knowing he's going to bring his son into the world, in conditions where he's going to be exposed, he's going to be in a manger, would have done what he needed to do to ensure the conditions were favorable. That, that only makes sense for a, a loving, caring God, the God we know out of the Bible, to watch over every detail, even that small detail, for the sake of his plan. Now, a lot, is, a lot has been made about the manger birth, about the fact that there's this evil innkeeper that didn't let them have room in the inn, right? We all, you've seen the kids play this story out when they, when they go through the, the Christmas pageant every year. And when they get to the inn, it's, no, no room. Slam the door right on Jesus, right? That evil innkeeper. Well, I think he's getting a bum rap. In fact, if you go back to the words used in the Greek here, you'll begin to get a different picture of what likely was going on in the city of Bethlehem. The word for inn in the Greek, kataluma, kataluma, it doesn't mean inn in the same sense as we might use the word. It doesn't mean an establishment set up to sell rooms or rent rooms for the night. They have a different word in the Greek for that. It's not as though that concept didn't exist. They had a word for it. This isn't the word. This is a word that means more like a guest room in a house. Many of you probably do this, right? We have a whole room in our house that goes unused, except this time of the year when we have guests show up to live in that room. It's our guest room. And that's really the word here. The word kataluma means more the guest room in a house. In this day, in the day of this story, an Israeli house, typically it was a small thing. It wasn't very elaborate. But it, used, it would typically have at least two sections, one for the people, one for the animals. And then secondly, within the, animal, within the section devoted to people, there was usually one or two rooms. And if they had the space, they'd devote one of those rooms as a guest room. To be able to prepare for and take care of a guest was considered a high honor. And you made room for them. You had room set aside for them. And that was a privilege. If somebody came to you, you would give them that guest room. That was the cataluma in the home in the Greek. So it's likely here that really what's going on, Mary and Joseph visiting the city of his family, the city of David, his ancestral home, they've probably come looking for long-lost relatives. Remember, it's not likely Joseph lived here at all, probably, in his lifetime. 
sometime in his past, an ancestor left Bethlehem, moved up finally to Nazareth, and then established a new family there, and he came along at that point. That's likely what happened. So in going back to Bethlehem for the census, he's going back to find long-lost relatives. Sort of like what you're going through this weekend, right? People you never knew you were related to and wonder why you are. At least that's my experience in those moments. And likewise, here, he's probably knocking on the doors of family who may be only vaguely familiar with him or with his father or his father's father, whoever it is that he's related through. And it appears as though he's gone to at least one of these homes and been told there's no room. Now, either because it's a census and because everybody's traveling home, maybe it is the fact that his relative, whoever he knocked on the door of, has that room occupied already by some other traveling relative. That, that's possible. But I also see another possibility here. We said this a couple weeks ago. Here is Joseph traveling with a woman who's pregnant, but he's not married to her, not in the official sense. He's engaged, it says. This is a terribly shameful thing. It's shameful for her, and it's shameful for him. We said last week, he's probably the first fool for Christ recorded in Scripture, a man willing to be made a fool of for the sake of Christ. And he comes upon family and he knocks on the door and he says, no, remember, she's about to give birth. You ever seen a woman about to give birth? You know, she, there's no doubt as you look at this woman that she's about to give birth. And he no doubt would have introduced her, not as his, as his wife, but as the woman he was engaged to. Because Joseph's not going to counter the testimony of the Holy Spirit that this is not his own child. He's not going to lie and say, it is my child. He's not going to lie and say he's married when he's not. And so he would have represented her for who she was, a woman who was carrying a child not his own. At the first sight of that, any self-respecting family would have turned them away. They're ashamed for them. They're a family member that's now ostracized, that's put out, that's left without family, as it were, because of the shame of that event. That may not be what happened, but it's likely that when they came upon family, they were told, there's no room for people like you. And they were given no place to stay. Now, because they are family, on the other hand, they didn't exactly turn them away entirely. What likely happened at that point is they would say, well, you can sleep with the animals. Because in the house structure itself, the roof encapsulated the home on the one half, but it had the, the, what we call a stable or a manger on the back half of the house. The animals were separated from the people by a wall within this home. And if you've been to ancient parts of the city, you'll see homes that are structured like that. They may not be used that way now, but you'll see homes where there's two halves to the home. So it's likely that they were given at least a token offer of, of comfort, of hospitality, by saying, you're worthy to sleep with the animals. Go into the manger. And so that was their only choice, and that's where they chose to go. We're also told Mary wraps the child as he's born that night in cloths. That's a humble way to begin life, no doubt, but it was also traditional. It was traditional for Israeli women to, to wrap their children up, much like you'd wrap up a person's body after death, very tightly, like a mummy, which does foretell a little the death of Christ in some people's eyes. And then finally, having born into this world, being born into this world under those conditions, the last step of this process is that God would announce his birth to shepherds. And shepherds would come running to see this miracle. Remember back in the book of Genesis as we studied the nation of Egypt? We commented at that time about the way they saw shepherding. That their view of shepherding was not a good one. That shepherds were viewed as the lowly people of, the, of society. And that was very much the case in this day. Now the Israelis, the Jewish people had kind of grown to that point as well. Where by the time Christ is born, shepherds were a lowly sort. They were dirty. They were considered uh, untrustworthy. They were considered a sort that you didn't want to associate with. 
So it seems as though God's gone out of his way to bring the lowliest of people to visit Christ. In other words, on the day of his birth, the people that would come and honor him in that moment are the dregs of the society from the state of that society. I think for today, the focus I want to make, give us for just a moment is on the nature of this circumstance from front to end. I mean, this is a striking scene. We've got this scene in our heads now from years and years of having it drilled into us over the Christmas story at December every year, and it's seen in this beautiful, you know, peace, uh, the, the, the peaceful, silent night, and all the, and that's fine, it's, it's true, but what's missing is this, it, and what makes this so striking is the fact that here's the future eternal king, the future eternal king of Israel, son of David, born in his own city, in the city of David, one day to rule the world, all knees will bow, all tongues will confess this man as Lord, as the Creator Himself. And yet His circumstances at His birth, at His first coming, couldn't be more lowly. They couldn't be. In that society, you couldn't do worse than He did. Illegitimate. Away from His family. Parents are scorned and shunned. They're, they're not, he's not even, by, by away from his family, I mean, they're not even born in his own hometown, in his family's real home. They've had to travel to this foreign place, this city they have no experience in. He's sleeping among animals, which was considered very lowly. His first visitors are the, the homeless of the world, if you will, the, the lowest people in that society. It seems as though God has prepared since, since the garden for the arrival of his son and the way he prophesied him and the way he created a people unto himself, the Jewish people, who would bring forth this Messiah, telling the prophets all the way along the way, you're going to have this Messiah, this King come to save you from your sins. And he's prepared every detail up until this day, and then all of this work culminates in what? In the most humble, miserable circumstances you could possibly imagine. And to Ken's point, God could have done it any way. He could have had Christ appear in the clouds, come down in a moment, the whole world see Him, trumpets play, a 10,000 army angel, you know, myriad of angels accompanying Him. He could have done anything He wanted, and He brought Christ this way. That's striking. We, we take that for granted when we hear the Christmas story. We don't ever stop to consider for the moment, why did God do it that way? Why did He do it that way? The only conclusion you can draw I mean, safely, the only conclusion you draw out of these circumstances is that the Father wanted to be sure that nothing about His arrival, nothing about Christ's arrival on this earth could be associated with wealth or success or even privilege in the world's eyes. That He would be completely stripped from any of the things that this world would associate with success. He was nothing like the Savior that the world expected. You remember that, right? The Jews expected a conquering king who would come and and separate them from their oppressing uh, Roman rulers. He represented everything that the world was willing to reject. And he was nothing they were willing to expect. And it's natural for us to jump to the end. It's natural for us to say, yeah, but one day he will. Right? We know that. On his second coming, Christ comes back in great glory and power to rule. And we all know that's coming if you understand your Bible. And so we think about that. Rightly, we should, just like we like to eat our dessert before we eat dinner, right? Or just like we want to know the ending of the book before we finish reading it. We all want that good, happy ending, and we want to get there right away. And I think we also tend to do that in our own lives, right? We want God to simply get around to the end of His plan, to give, giving us the rapture tomorrow, giving us the kingdom tomorrow. 
But we forget, he didn't just plan the end. He planned a beginning and he planned a middle. And every piece of that plan has to play out. So in our study of Luke today, we're going to move on in a moment, but first, I want you to consider that God has set the circumstances of this story of Christ's birth in such a way that we're going to understand not only more about His first coming, but also our response to His coming. In fact, this story actually begins before Christ even arrives. The story of Christ coming as a child began long before that moment. In Philippians 2.6, Paul says this, Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. You've heard that, right? He goes on, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, the story of Christ begins as Christ Himself testified in John 8.38 that He existed before even Abraham did. That Christ was always with the Father. So when we talk about Him coming down in that form as a child, don't think of that as the beginning. Think of that as the middle. Think about that for a moment. He was already glorified. He was already with the Father from the very beginning as John 1 tells us. And yet He chose to come out of that time of glory and honor and come back in form of, or come to earth in the form of man. But didn't even just, the fact that He's coming as man alone is bad enough. He came under these humble circumstances, under the most of humble circumstances. Zechariah 9.9 prophesied this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey, to emphasize how lowly the animal was. That seems such a bizarre image to the Jew reading the prophecies of their coming Messiah, that he wouldn't just come and produce uh, kingship and salvation, but he was going to come in this humble way. Why bother? Doesn't that, think about that for a minute. If he's coming to give us salvation, if he's coming to declare himself king, why not come looking like one? Why go through the humble step? In Matthew 11.29, Christ says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The Father had several reasons for having His Son arrive in a humble way. And these are the lessons we have to understand and learn from the Bible story of the, of the manger if you ever have any hope to understand why it's important. I mean, first, on a practical level, He came to die. All right? He came to die, so putting Him in a lowly situation where the world thought of Him as, as scum, where He was scorned, well, that served God's purpose in having Him put to death ultimately so that those who would be conspiring against Him would have reason to think they should that it would play against their prejudices, it would work with their evil heart so that they would accomplish God's work. Well, that's the practical side of it. We understand that. But there's more going on than that here. It's more than just God setting up His Son to be put to death by the fact that He was a lowly, scorned individual. Christ is setting an example for us here of how we are to live the perfect, obedient life. The perfect, obedient life. He's an example of how we are to live you all have been told, right? We all are supposed to imitate Christ. How many of you, when you hear that phrase, imitate Christ, imagine it in this respect? I'm supposed to make sure that I'm always doing the right thing. Right? I don't want to sin. I don't want to lie. I don't want to cheat. I don't want to steal. I want to be honoring to my wife. I want to go to church regularly. I want to make sure I pray. I've got to do that. I've been told I've got to do that. I'm supposed to study the Bible regularly. I've got to do that. 
the more of those things you do, right, the more you're leading a Christ-like life, the more you're imitating Christ, right? Okay, well, I don't want to tell you not to do those things. Do those things. That's what we're supposed to do. But is that leading a Christ-like life? Is it simply a checklist of what we're supposed to do to lead a Christ-like life? I think it goes far deeper than that. In fact, I'll give you a challenge right now. I would have you dispense with all of that if in its place you truly imitated Christ in the way He meant it. And what He meant was to be obedient to the Father. God speaks frequently and He speaks forcefully about the need for us to be humbled. Let me give you just a sampling of some of the verses that deal with this issue and then see if you don't come to the same conclusion I do. He will exalt the humble and He will bring down the proud. James 4, 6 says this, He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4.10 goes on, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Proverbs, going into the Old Testament, Proverbs 29.23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Job even said in 22.29, When you are cast down, you will speak with confidence and the humble person He will save. Isaiah 66.2 For my hand made all these things, Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And finally, Psalms 76, 9. When God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth. That's who God will save. There are two kinds of humility here at work. First, there's that humility that precedes faith. In order to be saved, you humble yourself before the Lord. That, that's the humbling of appreciating your own sinfulness and the need for a Savior. Presumably, those in here who would call themselves believers, hopefully every man, woman, and child, you've already done that. We've been through that moment of saying, it's not about me, it's about you. I can't save myself. You can save me. Your work on the cross, not my work, is saving. And I accept, your salva- I accept that salvation. That's the humbling that starts the process. Great. Give yourselves a pat on the back. You're there. Now what? What most of these scriptures deal with, on the other hand, is the second kind of humbling. And that's the daily effort of contending with our pride, of exalting God rather than exalting ourselves. That's what Christ meant when He said, do what I do. That's the hard part. You know, it's relatively easy to come to church every Sunday. It's a lot harder to contend with your pride and exalt God rather than exalt yourself. That is the humbling that God wanted us to see through Christ coming to earth in the way He did as an obedient act to the Father. In fact, that second form of humbleness, that's the ones that Christians are supposed to learn from when they observe Christ and His arrival in this manger. Well, let's talk about that for just a moment as we prepare to move on. Because I don't want to go past this point without giving you at least some idea on how we're supposed to approach this out of Scripture. There's an interesting exchange between Peter and Christ in Matthew, the book of Matthew, the Gospel, where this exact experience is given to us through Peter's eyes, through what Peter goes through. You know, practicing humbleness in the sense of its meaning in Scripture, that's a daily effort. It's a daily effort. I, I'll tell you, I'm particularly proud of how humble I am <laughs> and how hard I work at it. And you know, that's the joke of that is you can't fake it, right? People often talk about, uh, I wish I could fake sincerity better. You know, when you talk to somebody... It's the same idea here. If you could fake humility, or if you're faking humility, then it's actually pride at work. It's an irony in itself. 
In Matthew 16.21, Christ gave us essentially the answer for how you deal with that tendency to not want to be humble, but rather to fake it. To look pious and righteous without actually experiencing it internally. In 16.21, Christ is addressing the disciples. And here's what he says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside. And I love Peter. If you've ever studied the Gospels, if you study it all around Peter, this is a man that is defined by pride. He was a prideful man, very arrogant man at times, very strong man. God used those things to good in the end, but in his early days, he was quite a sight. And here he is in front of Christ, and he says this, Peter took him aside. Now listen to the body language here. Listen to the, to the description. Peter takes Christ aside. Come here, Christ, come here. Right? And then he says, it says, and began to rebuke him. Oh my goodness. He rebukes Christ. Okay. If you're prideful, you're secondary to Peter. Okay? Because unless you've rebuked Christ lately, he's still one up on you. He pulls Christ aside and says, Christ, Christ, you know, Jesus, come on. Don't be saying those things. He says, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not just, you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then the punchline. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Look at the analysis Christ gives in response to what Peter does. Because this is the issue of being humble in a nutshell right here. The thought of Christ being persecuted in the way that Christ said he would was so shocking to Peter and it was, it was so bothersome to Peter that he foolishly decides he's going to come to Christ's rescue, right? He's going to be the one who saves Christ from this terrible thing. So he gives him good advice. This is a message, by the way, on the side as we pass it. It's so often the case that what we get from our Christian brothers and sisters in the form of advice is actually worldly advice. It's a selfish kind of advice. It comes out of what's inside them, not what's inside Scripture. Here's a good example of that. Well-meaning, yes, but wrong. Christ rebukes Peter, and he does it fairly harshly, and he does it for this reason. He says, your mind is not set on God's interest, but it's set on your own. And then he speaks those famous words about take up your cross and follow me. It's interesting, he's speaking these words before anyone knew that Christ was going to be crucified. Before we ever understood the association of the cross with Christ. He knew it though, obviously. He says a life following Christ is a journey, yes, made possible by faith. It begins with faith, we understand that. But it's taken in small daily steps of denying our own desires and our own fleshly instincts and then allowing them to be replaced by God's. You know what Christ is telling Peter here? You know what he's telling us? He's saying, if you are pursuing a life directed by your own desires, what you want, then you are doing exactly the same thing that, Christ was, that Peter was doing to Christ. You are putting a stumbling block in front of yourself, equivalent, by the way, to Satan himself. In other words, it could have the same destructive power that Satan in his own abilities could have with respect to your walk, with respect to the way your life is carried out. And that desire that Christ knew, that Christ felt as a human being, to not do the Father's will, 
was actually being inflamed here by what Peter was suggesting. In other words, it would have mattered nothing to Christ if it wasn't the fact that these words actually tempted him. Otherwise, he would have, said, he would have ignored Peter. The fact that these words actually had a tempting nature to Christ is reason why he said, get behind me, you're a stumbling block. You're giving me reason to not obey the Father. To put my own desires as a human, in human form, ahead of the Father's desires. To, to want to save my life rather than give it up, as the Father has said I will have to do. Humbleness is not how spiritual we look or how much we go to church or how much we do all these things people tell us to do. It is about whether or not every step we take is directed by the Father or by our own desires. You know, since the short time I've been a Christian, all 10, 12 years of it, something like that, I have never heard anybody stand up in this kind of a setting or even a Bible study for that matter and say to me that the the whole focus for Christian living The entire reason we are born and we live on this earth is for us to give up everything we have of our own desire and nature and let God replace it with His. Let His desires become our desires. And I don't want to make the same mistake that people have made, I guess, with me and, and leave that aside for the moment. Christ left heaven and His place of honor and then to make matters worse, He became an object of scorn at the hands of men and He did it for one reason only, because the Father told Him to. While he was still in heaven, the Father explained the plan and said, you need to go down and do this. And Paul tells us in Philippians, he didn't consider equality to God something so great that it had to be grasped, it had to be held on to. He was willing to give that up for no reason except the Father asked him to. That was it. You know, he gained nothing out of it, by the way. He didn't come down and get more power, more glory, more of what he didn't already have. It's not as though he earned himself anything other than the praise of the Father. In obedience. And then the Father graciously gives him a bride. But that's not what Christ earned. Christ was already everything. Everything was already His. And similarly, we can't offer any excuse for why we we can't follow God. There's no excuse you can offer right now for why you can't do what the Father asks you to do that's going to come up to the bar of simply obeying God. You know, if you're going to have a life marked by giving up of everything... In other words, if you're going to be marked as a humble individual in the same way that Christ is demonstrating His humbleness in how He came to earth, then you're going to have to be willing to give up everything dear and accept in its place anything the Father might give. Anything. You know the prosperity gospel nonsense that's out there now? It proposes that the only thing God will ever want to give you is more riches and more materialistic things, more of what you want internally. You think that's really what a loving father does? Look at your own children. Do you want to give them what they want? Unendingly, without, you know, without limitation? No, that's a bizarre concept on its face, much less scriptural. How about this? What if God were to demand we relinquish uh, our house or our car or our toys in any form or, or even our job? Okay, we all will be willing to do that, right? That's the typical Christian example. You bet, I'll give all that up. We may have done that at one time or another, right? Okay, what about your prejudices? What about your bad habits? How about your fears? How about your hatreds? How about your procrastinations? How about your weaknesses? Whatever they may be. What about your selfish interests? What about your false identities? What about your prideful self-image? And I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. If you're willing to give up those things, that's what humbleness looks like. The toys, the materialism, that's hard. It's a really shocking thing that that's hard when you really consider that's easy. 
What's hard is to say, I'm going to stop all these other things that define my life because God has asked me to do that. And when I do that, I'm truly putting obedience to the Father above my own interests. In fact, I would argue that the degree of sinfulness, or let me t- say it differently, I would argue that the degree of sinlessness in our lives, to the degree we step away from sin in our lives, that's actually less important in the big picture than just pure obedience. Though they are obviously one and the same thing, right? Ultimately, to obey God is to have no sin in your life. But in terms of a checklist, just work on the obedience thing first and leave all the details to God. Watch what changes. I think we often put the small things first and the big things last. Okay, so if you're going to walk with Him and we're going to get obedience and receive whatever blessing He may give you, um, He's first going to have to ask you, are you willing to give up anything? And then if you're willing to give it up, He might choose to restore something to you. And that's the nature of the God we serve. Alright, so we learn from the example God set for us, even in the way He began His life, in humble and lowly circumstances. But He does return in glory. It's not all bad news. That initial coming in humbleness is... Is, a, is simply the first step for Christ. He will return later in, in a glorified way. And in fact, the same is true for us. If we're willing to be humbled first, then God will lift us up. We will come back in a glorified body. And we will see the fruit of our labor. Well, enough about that. Let's go to Luke 2.16. So they came in a hurry, these are the shepherds, and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as he had been, as, uh, he had been told them. Just as had been told them, I'm sorry. So the shepherds visit, they report their experience to the angels and to Joseph and to Mary, and that report brings a great deal of wonder in their hearts, and Mary as well treasured these statements. Is it getting hotter in here? This is even getting hotter, isn't it? Well, we'll have to work on that. And then we hear the shepherds. They come in and they rejoice and they're praising God. Now, this is a great scene. We don't, we don't have to spend much time on it, but just for a moment, would you consider with me just how beautiful a scene this is? Here you have men who've come from the field marveling at God's work, and it's kept in their hearts. Mary pondering it in her hearts. Everyone there reflecting on the majesty of that moment, as humble as it must have been, testifying and pray to God's power and praising Him in their midst. And it leaves me just with a moment to consider, in the most trying of our circumstances, in the most humble of our circumstances, when God brings you through it, when there's something on the other end to show you God's been at work in it, take that moment to praise God. Take that moment to give a testimony. Use that experience in that way. Don't forget, even in the, in the low moments of your life, to give Him praise over how He's bringing you through it. And consider Mary, for that matter. You know, she's had nine months of shameful pregnancy. Nine months of scorn. And now she rejoices in the full awareness of this miracle. And she's pondering all these circumstances. And then she shares in this testimony of God's greatness. She stands as a nice example just in that of how for nine months she had to put up with all kinds of misery in order to do what God asked her to do. And then in the end she could share in the glory of that with God. Luke 21 then. Let's move on to something very interesting here as we see the circumcision of Christ. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All right, well, we know this already. After eight days, the circumcision must take place. And as the law required, they did it. And then we hear that there is a purification period for Mary, a time that has to pass before she could go into the temple with her baby and offer the sacrifice for her firstborn. Now, this purification was for Mary herself, not for the son. And according to the law, it was given that women who, were, who had just given birth were considered ritually unclean for about 33 days following the circumcision of the child so that on the 40th day after her son's birth, the woman could go in and offer a sin offering for her uncleanliness following the birth. And in the law, the sin offering was supposed to be given as a lamb. But if you didn't have enough money, you could give it in the form of two doves or two pigeons. So the fact that they gave birds here is an indication of the fact the family had very little money. They didn't have the money to afford a lamb. Now, this purification process, don't get it in your minds that somehow God's suggesting that a woman who gave birth had sinned. That's not the point being made here. Atoning for ritual uncleanliness is not the same thing as purification for sins. All sin does result in uncleanliness under the law, but not all uncleanliness is the result of sin. You can be considered ritually unclean under the law, though it's not a reflection of someone's sin. It had higher purpose than that. And in this case, Mary was simply considered ritually unclean because she had gone through a childbirth process, because she had touched blood, because there was, it was a, a surgery, if you will. It involved uh, a... a defiling of the body by virtue of blood, not because the act itself was somehow inappropriate. The very fact that she has to purify herself, though, is proof of Jesus being born. Some would argue in some faiths that you've heard of that Christ didn't actually be, wasn't never actually born a human, that He appeared in some uh, spiritual way, came down in the clouds, appeared on earth, and lived His life, and then went back up into the clouds, that He never was actually born. Luke's account here includes this detail because it means Mary actually went through a childbirth. It was a literal, physical childbirth that she experienced, which necessitated her going through this ritual cleansing. Then in 25, we're told about this man now that meets them in the temple. And this is where the story gets interesting. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the uh, consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So they came, um, verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things that were being said about him. Wouldn't you be? Remember, he's, he's got dirty diapers just like any other baby. He's keeping them up at night in the middle of the night. And here are people praising him as the salvation of the world. I would have to imagine there's days in Mary and Joseph's life when he didn't seem like anything other than a, a baby. Although, I'm sure it became readily apparent he was different than the average child. Mary and Joseph bring this child into the temple. I, I want you to see this complete picture because it's really an amazing one. The Holy Spirit brings a man named Simeon into the temple on the, same, on the very same day that Mary and Joseph are arriving for the circumcision. Simeon means, we studied this when we looked at the tribes of Israel, his name means 
Uh, two or three different things. It's a synonym for announces or comprehends or obeys. Interesting that all three are applicable here. It's obvious. God has revealed to this man through the Holy Spirit that he would have the privilege of seeing the Messiah born at some point during his day, during his lifetime. And I guess he'd been waiting for many days in anticipation for the opportunity to see that thing carried out. And then he sees Mary and Joseph arrive at the temple. And doesn't it strike you as amazing that not only does he, is he there, but he knows instinctively who the child is. There's no words exchanged. As soon as he sees Mary and Joseph and Jesus, he says, there's the Christ. And he holds him. And he embraces him. And then he blesses God. And then having come to know who the Messiah is, having seen him in the flesh, he declares that he has no reason to go on living in this world. Not so, many, not so much in those words, I understand. But he effectively says, my purpose in life has come to completion. I'm ready to go home now. Everything my life was worth living for has now been realized by my having been here to see the day that Christ would arrive. Now I've been fulfilled. I'm ready for the next step. And it is as if there's no reason for him to exist except that he would be there to see and hold the Messiah on that day. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the point. What a beautiful illustration of what Luke has just been recording for us up to this point. This man's little experience is a perfect encapsulated analogy or picture of everything that we've been building through as we study the birth of Christ so far. You know, we all began in life with that empty feeling, that need for purpose and no real understanding of what that purpose is, especially if you're like me and you came into life and you gained faith as an adult. You had some period as an adult before that moment. Then instinctively you know what I'm talking about, where you're seeking something greater than yourself and you're not sure what it would be or who it should be. And then along comes the Holy Spirit to woo us, to give us some softening in our heart and in small ways to begin to direct our steps toward Christ, toward something hopeful. And on a certain day, the Holy Spirit directs us toward our Savior just as clearly and surely as He did for Simeon that day in the temple. On that day, on that specific day when the Lord had appointed, there would be the meeting of Simeon and his Lord. Though he looked for him his whole life and was waiting that whole time. And when he finds him, he rejoices, he blesses his name, and he embraces him. And then he says, that's it for my life. I now have no purpose apart from how I have been united with Christ. All of what may have defined my purpose in life prior is of no value anymore. Isn't that a great picture in our own lives? As we're supposed to be obeying the Father, becoming humble as He was humble, giving ourselves over as Christ gave Himself over to the Father. Simeon is a wonderful little picture of doing exactly that, of living a whole life in seeking of the Lord, but having found Him, he says, there is nothing greater now. There is no reason for me to go on. Now, does that mean that at the moment we find Christ, we should find ways to put our life to an end? <laughs> Obviously, that would be a bizarre conclusion and not the correct one. But in a daily way, it is still somewhat true that we should be dying to ourselves, as the Scriptures put it. So in practical terms, who are you living for today? When we go out of this room, when we go out and we choose how we're going to spend Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and onward, if you're building up a life here of activity and, and events, of wealth and purpose, that all of which is driven by your own desires and your own cares and concerns, things you thought up because they sounded cool, they sounded interesting, they seemed impressive, I want you to challenge yourself a little this week and ask yourself, did God give me those desires or are they my own? 
And if they are my own, to what purpose are they serving? Because if they're only for yourself, folks, they burn up. There will be a day when they will be gone and you won't remember them and they'll have done nothing good for anyone. But if you're doing the things God would have you do in the same way that Christ took on the obedience that he took on, then all of those things last. That's the great irony here. They last for eternity. The things you do in obedience to the Father never end. They will follow us, Christ says, as crowns in our next life. Joshua 24.15 says this, in part, Then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. He says there's a choice to be made. Choose. Are you about serving yourself? Or are we about serving the Lord? It's not how many times we go to church. It's not how often we say prayers. It's not how much we study the Bible. It's whether or not we're willing to give up anything He asks and replace it with anything He offers. I think most of us know those things He's asked and we know what we want to do or what He wants us to do. It's only a matter of whether we want to do them. Right? How beautiful it is if this small gathering, wherever we would find ourselves in life, were a picture to the rest of the world of what it meant to actually follow Christ in all that we do. I've known very few men I could say actually reflect that in their lives, but when I've met them, I never forget them. I hope we could become those same people. Father, we go back into prayer, Lord, recalling You into our presence as we know You've been here all along. Thanking You, Lord, so much for the blessings of this fellowship and for the teaching of Your Word. Father, it is easy to hear the message from a Sunday to another Sunday and forget it in between. But, Father, I do pray that what may be spoken here today that's pleasing to You would remain. That as we consider the way You chose to bring Your Son into this world, an example of how we may obey to the point of humbleness, to the point of scorn, to the point of giving up all that we count dear so that all that remains is our obedience. Father, I pray that that example could be made real for each of us, Father so that in the walk we take out of this room, at each moment we have to make decisions, both big and small, that our first instinct, Father, would be to seek You, to seek Your will, and knowing, Father, that You will be faithful to give us those desires that we should have. I pray then, Father, that we will respond, that we will hear You, and that we will choose to follow You, and that our life, Father, would be marked by that kind of obedience, so that not just in the small things, not just in the material things, Father, but in everything, we would yield to Your will. As we lift these things up, in the name of Your Son, Jesus, Amen.